Hello there. <laughs> Nailed. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> are you there, Pete? Hello. Yeah. How Still are here. You? Oh, you're... I'm good. <laughs> How are you? Good, good. We've got a special guest today. Um, I know you haven't met her, but I've known her probably for 10 years at least, give or take. Mm, yeah. Um, wow. uh, let me introduce her by her, her academic qualifications. Doctor, oh. Dr. <laughs> Elisha. Alicia. Alicia. Uh, Alicia. I, I know I get that Everyone wrong. does it all Alicia. the time. Do you blame your parents for that? <laughs> I blame them for everything. It starts with an E, which is even worse, so no one gets that right either. Dr. Alicia Harris. Um, I, I met uh, Alicia about 10 years ago when she came to see me to do some conveyancing, I reckon. That was what it was, wasn't it? That was actually in 2005. What the So heck? 14 years ago. Oh, my goodness. And you were doing some conveyancing for our land. Right. And then uh, we had a separate building contract and you offered to look at that. So we came around to your house randomly one evening and sat around your dining room table, myself and my husband, while you looked at our building contract. Oh, my God. And if yeah. I had known what your qualifications were, I wouldn't have touched it with a 45-month <laughs> Uh, so, uh, Peter, Alicia, Alicia, Peter. How are you, Peter? I'm well, Alicia. And uh, looking at your profile, I think you may be best described as alphabet. <laughs> <laughs> I, I find that if you just keep adding more letters after a certain number, <laughs> questions it. So the <clears throat> sticks are just rubbish. <laughs> I might add some to mine too. I, I was thinking I could chuck in some things there like ASAP and RSPCA and nobody would <laughs> know they're exactly not qualifications. Right. So after a certain point, people stop reading. So, Well, we're going to get to all of that. Uh, but what we'd first like you to do is mm -hmm. tell us your territory story. Okay. How I ended up here? How you ended up here. Oh, and so, maybe a little bit before yeah. that too, like where you, okay. where you were born and all that. Sure. So I was born in Townsville and lived there pretty much all my life, all my schooling life with a very short stint in Roma in Western Queensland but mainly uh, in Townsville through school, high school, university, my undergrad. Um, so I, like many people who've grown up in one place, once they get to a certain age, it's like I need to get out of here and go somewhere else. Um, and for me, so I finished up and when I was 21 and moved to Brisbane. I got a job and had my first graduate role in Brisbane. Um, Doing what? I, uh, as a graduate structural engineer. Right. Yeah. So, Which company was that? Uh, with Arup. Yeah, it was called Ovarup and Partners at the time, okay. but uh, Arup now. And um, I was there for a while. Didn't really like Brisbane all that much when I was there. It's sort of, I, I don't know, it was a bit of a tough one. And then they sent me down to the Sydney office to work for about six weeks. And I went to Sydney and it was wonderful. It was amazing. <laughs> it was fantastic. This is someone, you know, I'd grown up in Queensland. Our holidays consisted of driving down to southern Queensland to visit our rallies. So I wasn't exactly, you know, the most well-travelled. Um, went down to Sydney, did that work there, um, headed back to Brisbane and was probably only there another three months before I quit that job and moved to Sydney to do my postgrad, um, my, my postgrad work at the University of Sydney and was there for five years. Um, simple case of boy meets girl. I met my husband in Sydney. Um, he uh, was originally from Melbourne, but had, had moved around a bit. He was in the army. And so he'd actually spent, I think, four years prior um, up in Darwin in the late 90s. And so he was keen for a posting and, and he thought, oh, I'd be keen to go back to Darwin. 
And at that stage, you know, I'd been nearly five years in Sydney, was finishing what I needed to do. So I went, yeah, sure, why not? Let's move to Darwin. Had never been here in my life. Um, I figured I grew up in Townsville, so weather, size, must be about the same. Let's just hope it's all good. And originally it was um, a two or three year posting and we came up and uh, ended up here being, uh, ended up being here for eight years. So I had a job um, six months before I left Sydney. Was, it was pretty easy to pick up work. Uh, so I was working up here for a consulting company and I was also doing some casual lecturing at the uni. In, in civil engineering, so that was good after doing the the academics down in um, down in Sydney, and yeah, eight years um, in that time, <laughs> we had we had two kids as well, and then Chris um, got a posting to Melbourne. There was there was a bit of choice in that, and we we decided to go to Melbourne. That's where he's originally from, and so we had three years down there um, in 13, 14, and fifteen. Had another child. And then moved back up here at the start of 2016. And so, why did you move back? Um, <laughs> we actually never thought. Have you been to Melbourne recently, Leo? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, look, it was, it was a defence posting. Melbourne was never going to be, I don't think, the forever place. Um, but it was, you know, I, I don't mind moving around, seeing different things, all that sort of stuff. And um, we actually thought we'd end up in Townsville or Perth or something like that next. Um, but the option for Darwin landed on the table and we went, Sure, let's let's do that. We were both keen to to come back. Um, very different lifestyle to Melbourne or Sydney or Brisbane. You know, having lived in all those places, um, and I think particularly with having a young family um, and having the ability to spend more time with them in a place like Darwin than you can in Melbourne. And I've got a, a number of friends who've sort of bounced around and have come back to Darwin, and that's always been one of the biggest biggest reasons that people have cited, plus the weather. <laughs> I don't. I don't. Like, I simply don't like being cold. I think it's as simple as that. Well, I don't mind it's cold in winter, you know. So give me June, July, August. That's good. But in Melbourne, September's still winter, and October's still winter, and November's got a bit of winter in it as well. And by the time you know you're going to work on a December morning and it's five degrees when you walk into the train station, it's like no, this is ridiculous. I cannot do this. <laughs> so I know Pete's going to break in there with yep. a few things to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, welcome to my world. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, um, I flew up to Darwin in November uh, last year and I left the farm where I was staying. I was in shorts and T-shirt and had a jumper on. It was two degrees yeah. and I arrived in beautiful Darwin. I think it was 34 or something when I got there. But um, I was just saying that to someone the other day. It's fine if it was only for a couple of months, but it just goes on and on and on, and it can still be chilly in November, December, which is ridiculous. Yeah, it, it did my head in. The, the one that I loved, though, was when they'd be like, oh, it's going to be a 40-degree day. And it's like, well, yeah. it's not really going to be a 40-degree day now, is it? When you wake up, it's yeah. going to be 15. It's still yeah. going to be about 25 <laughs> at lunchtime. You know, it'll, it'll be a 40-degree day from 3 to 4 yeah. p.m. And then, and then yeah. the temperature will go back down. I mean, don't get me wrong. It is pretty brutal when it is. But in Darwin, you know, a 35-degree day, it's 32. It feels like, like, no, it's like a 40-degree period within a, within a day. But I've got so, to tell you this story, yeah. Elisha. Um, so Pete was complaining to me about the weather yesterday in in, in Melbourne where he is, so well, just outside of, um, he said it was so cold over the weekend, 
he couldn't get into the shower. Is that right, Pete? Is that what you said? <laughs> I, I was standing at the shower and I had the water going and I was so cold that my back had seized up. I couldn't move my legs. <laughs> that is brutal, Pete. Uh, honestly, and I grew up, I grew up in Melbourne, but I just do not remember it being like this. It's just crazy, and there's just the thing, the thing with the territory and and with Northern Australia that that you don't appreciate till you get back to these much colder climates, is that there's always a degree of humidity, and when they talk about relative humidity down here, it's a very different beast to what we understand and. And know and love up there, so yeah. It's anyway. I, 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 as you started talking, then Alicia, I was thinking to myself, it's very easy to sit up there in thirty degrees and say, "Oh, I can handle it in June and July." <laughs> <laughs> I, I was thinking, admit, "Oh yeah." I must admit, when I when I left Darwin, I didn't come back for. Oh, it was it was quite a while. It would have been about eighteen months or so. Um, between trips up to Darwin, and when I came back and I got off the plane, I'm like. Ah, oh, that's right. <laughs> and it was, it was just great. And then I was, I was doing a number of work trips backwards and forwards, like during the dry season and stuff as well. It was amazing getting out of the Melbourne winter and, um, yeah. and and coming up here. It was just fantastic. And I thought, yeah, this this is really what I'm suited to. So, so when so you got back up here, mm -hmm. and then you worked for another company before you started your own. No, um, I, we actually started the company uh, when I was still in Melbourne. And so that was an interesting conversation. It was myself and a, and a colleague at the time. We'd worked together for about eight years at that stage, both uh, when I was in Darwin, he was based in Darwin, and um, also when I was in Melbourne because we were still in the same company. We were just sort of working remotely from each other, big company, but they said I was doing a bit of NT work, so I was still backwards and forwards. And it was one of those conversations, you know, where someone throws out over lunch and say, oh, we could do this, we could do our own thing. And it sort of sits there in the background for a really long time. And for us, it did. It was years. And then one day it went, you know, maybe we should actually seriously look at this. And, um, and so we did. We sat down and I'm an engineer. I love a good spreadsheet. So, you know, <laughs> you, put your, um, you put your numbers together and you sort of understand, okay, what do we need to do to keep two of us employed yeah. so we don't have to go to someone else? Um, and so we put all those numbers together and then we, we sat down and we it must have been at the end of um, 2014 and we happened to both be on the Gold Coast visiting different um, family members. We said, okay, let's sit down and seriously look at these numbers and make a call, you, you know, are we doing this or not? And so we sat down and we went over it and went, yeah, we are going to do this, so now let's put a plan in to do it. We said six months give yourself six months to get everything squared away and also it put us end of financial year. Mm. So that sort of made sense in a number of ways as well. Um, and do it. So it was 2015 um, and I was still in Melbourne. And um, one of the, the threshold conversations we had to have was let's assume that you're always going to be in Darwin, you know, mm. my, my business partner, Bill. And um, because he's got family and stuff up here, there was, there was no likelihood of him leaving here. And let's assume that I'm never going to be in Darwin um, because I simply don't know where, where I'm going next, um, you know, where Chris's postings will take us or, or whether we'll still be here, whether we'll be Perth, whether we'll be Townsville. Um, I said, is, is that an issue for you? Because the business was going to be primarily Darwin-based to start with because that's where we had networks and new people and, and, and felt able to get work. And um, he just sort of shrugged his shoulders and went, yeah, that's fine. Mm. And so that was the extent of that discussion. I'm like, fine, okay. 
we'll, we'll go ahead with this and I'll fly backwards and forwards as needed. And so at the time, there was six months where I was living in Melbourne and flying backwards and forwards once, once a month and spending sort of a week or so at a time up here. And, um, and then it came up that the posting was back to Darwin, that that was one of the options. And so that was, um, you know, it, it was very welcome, of course, mm. but it was, it was unexpected and it, it did work really well to be able to come back up. Mm. So, yeah, that was, that was it. So I spent six months with the, the new business out of, out of Melbourne while Bill was up here in Darwin and since then I've been back up here. So. And you're happy? Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's been four years now. Uh, we've now got from an, initially Bill and I, we gained another business partner as well, um, who's actually based in Geelong. He's uh, currently in Bali, uh, <laughs> trying Close. to thaw out uh, with his family. But um, yeah, so there's there's the three of us, and then all up we have um, fourteen, soon to be fifteen, permanent employees. Wow! And uh, a, a couple of casuals floating around as well. So the bulk of them in in Darwin. Plus we've got an office of. Um, uh, there's three people over in our Cairns office and, of course, Richard, who works out of Geelong. And you've got a Cairns office as we well. We have a Cairns office. We right. do. And that was quite opportunistic with sort of opportunities with particular people and that sort of stuff. But, yeah, um, yeah it's it's great. Bill's actually over there at the moment uh, doing the doing the rounds. So, right, yeah. Right. And so what sort of work do you do up here when you say structural engineering? Oh, look, it, we actually go beyond that. I'm the only structural engineer. Right. Um, Bill's a project manager. Richard, the other director, is an electrical engineer. Mm. Um, so we have um, two electrical engineers in total. We have two mechanical engineers which do a lot of, who do a lot of HVAC-type work. Project management, we have... What does HVAC mean? Um, sorry, heating, <laughs> <laughs> ventilation, oh, right, air conditioning. Right. Um, so mechanical yeah. systems within buildings. Um, uh, they do other stuff as well, but that's that's a large part and it ties in well with the electrical building services stuff. Um, and project management. So we have a fair bit of project management work. We've actually got uh, three fairly um, experienced project managers and if I miss someone... And a, and a couple of a couple of juniors. I feel like I've missed someone. No, that's it. Right. Yeah. So and they do. They've they've. We we've been very fortunate in the project in all the spaces that we work in. But in project management, you'd recognise uh, uh, quite a number of our projects. Right. So the um, the recent netball stadium. Oh yes. Uh, we did the project management for that on behalf of Dipple. And when I say we, I had nothing to do with it. It was all Bill, <laughs> but I'm going to say we. And uh, also did the rugby league stadium. Right. Um, so they're a couple of the big recent ones, which we were very fortunate to um, to get a run with. Yeah. And mm. so what you tender for the government tenders for the work? And yeah. You yeah. So there's different right. things. Some's public tender, some select tender. But yeah. yeah, you've got to still compete to to get that work yeah. and demonstrate not only that your price is right, but that you've got the capacity and the capability and the the local content, because obviously local content's a big one for government up here, demonstrating that you are part of the territory and there is benefit to the territory as well from your business. And so by employing 15 staff, are Mm -hmm. they, um, uh, I mean, you mentioned a few of them are engineers. Yeah. And you have admin staff as well? Uh, We have a couple of technical officers. They're not admin. I probably neglected (laughs) to mention them before. They're the sort of jacks of all trade that um, do a lot of our drafting and will help out with a lot of inspections. And they're really good and they do... A bunch of stuff there. We've also got a couple of people who do um, some defence work. Um, defence has a sort of a fairly unique asset management approach and so and handover approach for projects. So they get involved on that. But um, apart from uh, a casual who helps out with the the, the bookkeeping and, and and some of the admin stuff, we don't have a, a full time admin person. It's really all technical, hands on people. Where's mm. your office? In Berrimah. 
at the Berrimah Business Park? Uh, um, yeah, in the Berrimah Business Park, so right. in, in that area. Okay. Yeah, it's a good spot. Yeah. <laughs> Pete, any questions? Yeah, so um, obviously the business started out with just the two of you, and as you mentioned, you've now got a, a team of 15 doing various things. How has it been a benefit to being based in the Territory from uh, a government assistance point of view or from a strategic point of view? Is, is, is the Northern Territory benefiting you from that perspective as well? Uh, we didn't. We haven't had any government assistance. <laughs> we there was probably stuff we could have we could have looked more into, but in reality, we just basically self funded and got into it, and were able to get enough work to to mm. sort of fund ourselves from there. Um, so I, I couldn't really comment on on what's available there and what we could have used, but we didn't. Um, I think obviously from a strategic point of view, you know, the, the territory is unique. Um, and having an understanding of what's up here and how the market works and how just, you know, just the whole business works up here. Mm. I, I think um, someone from who's, you know, born and bred Melbourne, never lived up here, I don't think would would understand as much the tyrannies of distance and access to places. And that. Like we do a lot of work in remote communities and when you sort of say it's a normal part of your business to jump on a single-engine plane and fly somewhere, that's... Um, you know, it's fairly uncommon in the in the eastern, you know, certainly in the southeastern states. Um, you know, people are like if they've got to drive a couple of hours, it's a it's a bit of an effort. Whereas where, you know, it, it's so spread out, and some places are simply inaccessible uh, unless you get on a plane or a helicopter or or whatever, which we do plenty of as well. Okay, well let me let me kind of switch gears a little bit. Uh, I've always been fascinated by your you and your career <laughs> because, uh, and I'll tell you exactly why. Number one, um, I don't think I've ever met a doctor of engineering before outside of university, <laughs> right? Uh, and uh, my best friend, the guy that I grew up with, uh, is an engineer as well. Um, and he uh, also, I mean, I convinced him to do a law degree. So he came up to Darwin to do a law degree with me. And I know that you did a law degree just uh, because you were born. <laughs> <laughs> not, not quite, not quite because I was bored. Look, I... I don't know. It's a, it's a bit of a funny one because it was, um, you know, I finished uni 20 years ago now, um, my, my undergrad. And, you know, you sort of think, oh, at some stage, oh, I need to learn more. There's all the, the stuff you learn on the job. And it's quite common for engineers to move into a project management mm -hmm. space and get qualifications in project management. I've done a lot of on-the-job project management stuff. The idea of doing some study around it isn't the most exciting to me at this point in time and, and and even though it was an obvious one it wasn't really something that appealed to me and um whereas the law um degree had always sort of sat in the back of my mind well that's an interesting idea and again it sat there for about three years that idea <laughs> until I thought you know what yeah let's let's just let's just do it and um CDU had a, a program available that was fully external um and was really geared up you know, for external students, it's predominantly external students, what well, it certainly was when I started. Um, and, you know, you, I could do it part-time. I didn't have to go in and see anyone. I could just do it from home. And so I thought, why not do that? So after having my, my first child when he was six months old and I was going back to work, that's when I started doing it. <laughs> I was obviously sleep-deprived or something when I made that decision. But, um, uh, you, you know, I just <coughs> got in and, and did it. And uh, it took seven years. Mm. Um, the, I think the other benefit was because I already had a degree. It was it was only a three year full time course. In the end, uh, 
I wanted to get it done in, I think I'd set eight years as my target for getting it done, but it ended up being seven years. So that was that was good. It was, it was good to have it done. <laughs> you were amazing. And the other issue that I want to talk to you about uh, in relation to uh, engineering is I remember when I went to university and uh, Elliot was doing engineering, mm-hmm. I think there was one female yeah. in the entire 200, <laughs> you know, uh, contingent of first-year engineers yeah. at UWA. How many were there in Townsville? Uh, it was it was probably fairly similar. I think when we started, uh, and I said it was tw- probably nearly <laughs> 25 years ago that I started, um, but I think we had seven girls, and I think there was, yeah, sort of of the order of 200 students. Um, engineering has a fairly high attrition rate after the first year. It almost yes. seems to halve. Yes. I'm not sure if other courses do the same, but... Um, by the time we finished, uh, I think there was four girls graduating um, of, yeah, potentially about uh, 100 people or something like that. So, yeah, there was none in mechanical. Wow. There was none in electrical. There was none in computer. There was two in civil, which is what I was in, um, two out of about 40 of, of that order. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I think the numbers are, are, are pretty stagnant and have been pretty stagnant. Um, I think it's typically around the 14% mark um, on average. So but what was it like? I mean, like, I mean, you went to a co-ed school, I yeah. presume? It's, yeah, it's, I did. So you went from co-ed sort of like roughly 50-50 yeah. into a course where you're like 4% of the class. Yeah. Yeah. What was that like? Was that... Seriously, was Leon, I, I was 17. It's amazing. <laughs> you had a full dance card, Alicia. Sorry, Pete, what did you say? You had a full dance card, Alicia. Uh, there was, I mean, I don't know if you've seen um, the, the typical engineering student type things, and I'm going to throw out some sweeping generalisations. Go on, some interesting, do it. interesting characters, uh, let's just say. But it was, yeah, it, it, it just wasn't an issue. I said it was as 70. I'm like, wow, this is interesting. I remember a couple of times, um, uh, like girlfriends and stuff who were at uni just saying, you should probably come to one of my lectures. Yeah. Because <laughs> the classes were so big, people didn't yeah. know that you were just a random extra. And they're like, oh my God. Because yeah, yeah. um, in the sciences and stuff, obviously, there's the, the ratios are, are quite are quite different. But um, yeah, it was. Well, I remember walking into the engineering faculty. Yeah. Uh, and I had to use the gents. Uh, and, I, and I walked in there, and above the toilet roll was scribbled. Arts degree, take one. <laughs> <laughs> that was the contempt with which engineers uh, uh, saw arts uh, degree. I, I, I tell you what, and it, I'm not trying to beat up arts students, but um, uh, they always seem to stick engineering down the back corner of campuses, I've noticed. Um, anyway, a friend of mine who I went to high school with who was also in, in the same course as me doing engineering, um, we were walking from the back corner where we're relegated to um, over to the refectory to have lunch. And there was a big, it must have been International Women's Day or something, there was this big rally and stuff going on. And she turned to me deadpan and she goes, I'd go and join them but I don't think we'd understand the struggles of our sisters in the arts. And obviously, again, you know, that was over two decades ago and I still remember it, just this deadpan delivery that she that she gave it with as well. It was great. And so do you think things have changed much? No. No, not at no, all? No, listen, the, the numbers have stagnated. I think a number of things have changed. Obviously, the numbers have stagnated. So it's still not attracting women 
into into the field, which is disappointing. Mm. Um, I think there's still um, high attrition rates once you're actually within the career field. Yeah. Like typically um, I go to meetings and if there's other female engineers in there, they'd be at least 10 years younger than me. Right. So there's, there's not really many um, that I see that are in their late 30s. That sort of seems to be a big dropout. And whether it's family related, there's some sort of, um, you know, conjecture around what causes it. I mean, of course, there are some around and, and I've, you know, I know some wonderful female engineers who I've worked with over the years. Um, but it is, it's, it's, there is just certain demographics you just don't see. And I seem to be falling squarely in that hole at the moment. But um, I, I don't know what the issue is. Mm. Um, but I, I think there's, there's certain well, you think things have changed and then you realise they're probably just a lot the same. I think um, people are a lot more accepting of women in certain positions because it's been the norm um, or more of the norm when they're, they're growing up. So um, you do see that. But that being said, um, I, I had a recent experience um, where pretty much my um, right to be working as an engineer was questioned because I dared to use my uterus basically and have children and why wasn't I at home? And my, my husband was probably not a real man because he'd let his wife out to work and this sort of stuff. And he said, just absolutely outrageous stuff that I was just gobsmacked by. And it came from um, someone probably late twenties, early thirties. This isn't like, you know, some 70 year old carrying on about what the good old days used to be like. And I was just absolutely gobsmacked. And um, I told my team about it. They were just like, who is this person? Like, And I said, I ever hear about any of you doing anything like that, you will no longer have a job. It was just outrageous. And you sort of think things have changed for the better and mostly they have. And then you get something like that that just absolutely blindsides you. And it's like, it's still alive and well out there somewhere. So, mm. What do you think about that, Pete? Oh well, yeah. I mean, we, we, it's it's timely because of a, a podcast that I'm I'm about to do on prejudice and political correctness. I mean, you know, there's doesn't matter what the age is. There's still dinosaurs around, but <laughs> we just, just got to try and silence them as best we can. I want to ask you about your um, your PhD. What did you do your PhD? In? Oh well, I'll run to your hats. This is pretty exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, you ready? Yeah. Sway stability of high-rise storage rack structures. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it actually... Was that thing? That's actually very interesting. <laughs> so the storage rack structures we're talking about are those really sort of light gauge ones. They can be, you know, like 10 stories high. Right. Um, they can be the ones that have like automated forklifts and stuff that go. And yeah. you know, they're, they're for the huge bulk storage of things. And so the storage rack them, themselves aren't really an issue like they're, they're not the most expensive pieces of kit i guess but the stuff that's stored on them yes so if one of those yeah. goes over yeah. and that's that's what actually kicked it off so um through the university of sydney and the the professor who supervised um my phd um and the project came out of that and basically we just built um model or not models we it was full it was a full scale modeling but we loaded it up and like there was multiple stories above it and all this sort of stuff and basically swayed it. Um, and so we basically wow. got to break things, mm. which yeah. is always fun. 
Um, basically, a lot of it came down to, well, they, they knew what the problem was, but just quantifying it was difficult. The connections between the beams and the columns or the uprights, as they call them, there's normally like little teeth um, on the ends of the beams that slot into the face of the uprights. And so the connection, like as engineers, we sort of like to model connections a certain way. And we have flexible connections, which we assume um, will just freely rotate. Um, and then we've got rigid connections, which we assume won't rotate at all. Whereas these connections were essentially semi-rigid connections, which fell halfway between. And so it's a lot harder to quantify the stiffness of, of those. And so it was, if you don't know that, then how can you design these things not to fall over, basically? So, yeah, um, lots of lots of testing and breaking things and um, analysis of that, basically. So, so at its most basic level, you're talking about moments, is that? Yes, yeah? that's right. That's okay. right. How much moment does, does that joint transfer and what rotation does it get to transfer okay. that moment? So you basically did your PhD in an area that caused me PTSD. <laughs> because when I was doing physics in year two, 11 and 12, and we got, which I struggled through, I have to tell you right yep. now, when we got to moments, that was it for me. I had no clue what was going on. And I you had a moment. Suffered PTSD I was from say, you, you, you clearly have got some, you know, some memories there because you brought it up now. PTSD. <laughs> it's like it's stuck in your brain. Like you wake up at night and go, ah! It sounded like you had a moment, Leon. What was that, Pete? It sounded like you had a moment. I did. I did have a moment. Plenty of moments. But uh, and, and so, so just in your PhD, um, you you had obviously a supervisor. Were you the only female doing a PhD in engineering? Uh, at the time, yeah. For the first few years, I was, um, and then we had a lady that came over from Canada I think she was just there for a year and she was she was doing PhD research as well right. so that was that was it and there was no because I was um, tutoring as well yes. in the classes um, at least initially I was tutoring and doing some marking and stuff there was no female staff within the department with the technical staff there was obviously admin and that sort of stuff but there was no female lecturers or tutors or or anything like that it was it was me <laughs> and this is you know university of sydney it was a yes, fairly big um yes. it was a fairly big um cohort of students going through and then um in my final <coughs> year in sydney uh one of the other lecturers went away he did a sabbatical somewhere else um and so for the last six months i was there basically i scored lecturing the classes that that he would have lectured so i had um i think i had one class of the third year so the steel design class and there was about 90 students in that and I had another class of second year it was like introduction to structural concepts or something there was like 110 students and uh, nobody came classes. up to you and uh, said excuse me what are you doing teaching us no I, I did actually have that I walked into an exam I just strolled on in and the um, moderators are coming up I'm like oh you know okay do you need some help finding your seat? I'm like, no, I'm the lecturer. <laughs> so, uh, okay. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, so, and with your business now, with your company, do you uh, do you employ any female engineers? I was actually just saying the other day, we've, we've done well, because for a long time it was, it was just me. Yeah. Uh, so one of our senior project managers, our project management lead is, is female. Um, our two... Uh, people who work on the defence stuff are both female and fingers crossed I've got a, um, a, a junior structural engineer starting 
in a few weeks, fingers crossed, who is female as well. So we'll have five out of the 11 in the Darwin office. Wow. Fingers crossed she's female or fingers crossed she's starting? <laughs> <laughs> I, I've got a verbal yes from her. I don't have it on paper yet. So uh, uh, fingers crossed okay. uh, all, all goes to plan. Well, I, I have to tell you, Pete, and, and, and you please chime in here, but I just think this is a really amazing story. I mean, the fact that you have come to Darwin You've set up a business from scratch here in engineering, in a profession that is male-dominated, and you have managed to almost uh, have as many uh, female uh, engineers as males in this jurisdiction. It's just, I can't. Pete, what do you reckon about that? Well, yeah, as you were asking the question and, and as Alicia was answering, I was thinking, well, it stands to reason because because the numbers are so so low and lopsided at the university level it's not suddenly like there's going to be 50 female uh, mechanical engineers sitting around waiting for jobs because you know the the machine can only spit out what goes in at <laughs> the other right. end but uh, the other thing too and the reason for my question earlier is that um you know with so much doom and gloom around the territory at the moment all these stories we're hearing about businesses closing we, we with no uh, assistance at all from the government other than uh, indirect tax benefits that you'd get from being based there. Um, th this is a story that A, needs to be told and possibly even needs to be examined because there's, there's a true success story of a growing business in the Territory at a time when things are going the other way. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and I think we've, we've been very fortunate, but I think you also make your own luck yeah. to an extent. We've, we've worked hard. It certainly hasn't been easy. Um, but I think we're fortunate in a lot of ways because we are quite diverse. We're not just offering one thing. So if, a, if the bottom falls out in that bit, then, yeah. then we're not sort yeah. of stuck. Um, sounds a bit corny, but when we were um, coming up with the name for the business, so Harris Common Solutions, the solutions was always going to be part of it. It was just in the end when we couldn't think of anything better yeah. that our last names became part of it. Because the <laughs> thing is um, what, we, what we found is that, yeah, you know, I'm an engineer and Bill's a project manager. And so there's very defined things that those people do. Mm. But we were noticing both of us throughout our careers that we would often do things that fell through the cracks or didn't quite sit in one area or needed, you know, just some extra extra research, extra digging to, to try and figure out how to do it. It's sort yeah. of one of those things. It's like, well, well, I'm not really sure, but how about I find out? Yeah. And and so that's what it came back to. It's like what we really want to offer is not necessarily engineering or project management. It's it's solutions. Yeah. Um, people come to us with questions and it might not be the most straightforward things, but, yeah. um, you know, say yes and have a crack and, and see what happens. And that's pretty much what we what we did. Um, I think one of the, the best projects like that that we've we've done we were asked, um, so there's basically Geoscience Australia are rolling out a network of, um, of stations basically that monitor the movement of the Earth's crust. Yeah. And so they need a number of things um, for those sites, including, you know, they want nice stable rock to put it on. Um, and, of course, up here there's cultural sensitivities around building in certain areas, so they want, you know, certain land tenure. And there's this whole list of things. Yeah. And it's not really an engineering task. Yeah. It's not really a project management task, but it's like, it was our job to go through and try and find yeah. locations that would be appropriate. Yeah. And so that led to us being able to hire a chopper and fly over to Coburg Peninsula all around there. I mean, it is a stunning area. And to be able to do that for work was just <laughs> 
fantastic. It was it was just amazing. And those sorts of opportunities. I said, that's not engineering. It's not project management. It's just kind of this random thing in, in between. It's like, yeah, sure, we can do that. Why not? Amazing. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, Alicia, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on here. Thank you. I knew your story was going to be great, and you, <laughs> but you haven't disappointed. Um, thank you for choosing the territory, and thanks for being up here. And, uh, yeah, good luck with everything. Um, Pete, do you have anything uh, you usually close these things off? Yes. Um... Thank you for that, Leon. You've caught me unawares. <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, yeah, I'm just. There's a billion and one questions we could we could ask. We might have to do a follow up with you, Alicia, if you don't mind. <laughs> oh no! Well, thanks for for having me on, guys. It's been uh, interesting. Good. All right, <laughs> Pete, take it away. Thanks for coming, Alicia. It was great chatting. And uh, coming up next, boundless possible podcast, Leon. Yeah. Is a surprise. We're not going to say, but we'll catch you next time, guys. Okay.